Good morning. Um, yeah, flip open to the book of Acts. Um, I'm going to read Acts 26, a few verses out of Acts 26 to begin. Um, we are actually going to do a monumental feat this morning and cover three whole chapters. Um, we are literally going to read out loud all three chapters. Um, listen, I think Luke would approve of this. I don't think this is uh, unfaithful. I really believe these three chapters go together. Um, these are three consecutive trials uh, that Paul has before Roman rulers. Um, they're the same structure. They flow together. Um, Luke clearly wants them together. And, and I believe there's one theme of these three chapters for us. And in the just amazing providence of God. It's exactly in line with Easter and what we've been praying for. So uh, I'm just going to read uh, chapter 26, verses 16 to 18 to start, and then we will pray and get into it. So flip ahead to chapter 26, verse 16. This is, these are the words of Jesus, uh, and Paul's recalling his, his testimony of when Jesus saved him. He's recalling his commission. So I'm going to read these verses, and then we will pray. Acts 26, verse 16, says this. This is Jesus speaking. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you again for your word. Now, thank you that you so clearly love to uh, be in the, the midst of your people. Thank you for your presence that we've already tasted this morning, Lord. And right now, would we sense your presence even, even nearer as you literally speak your words to us? Holy Spirit, would you make these three chapters and these stories um, not just history, not just truths, not just doctrine, but the living, active, powerful word of God, the same words that spoke the universe into existence, the same ones that are sustaining the universe, would you, the power of you, God, as you speak, would you uh, birth new life and hope and encouragement and correction? Would you recommission us, Lord? This is, this is who you've called us to be. You reveal that in your word in these three chapters. So, so, so move powerfully, Lord, as we open your word. Give us uh, stamina and good attention spans as we, as we read a lot um, and help us just to be faithful to you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, 2,000 years ago, a single guy, he was literally a single guy, and he was a single guy, stood on trial before the most powerful religious group in history, the Jews, and the most powerful empire in the world, Rome. One guy stood on trial against the most powerful religious rulers, the, the, the Jews, and the most powerful empire, Rome. This man was Paul. He's standing. These last couple chapters and these next couple chapters are Paul standing before the most powerful, like, powers on earth. And yet, 2,000 years later, Rome has fallen. The Jewish temple has been destroyed. And yet, the message of this man, Paul, the gospel, has literally spread across the planet, and it's still the most important and powerful and relevant message on this planet. Like, how did that happen? How did that happen? Um, why wasn't this one man just stamped out by the, the Roman Empire? Think about how many people stood against Rome. Why wasn't he just, um, like, why didn't the Jewish rulers just kind of like shut him up like they did so many other religious radicals? Like what happened there? Uh, in these three chapters, we, we, be, we begin to see like, how did this happen? How did we get here? The fact that we're Christians on the West Coast of North America started in these three chapters. The fact that the Jews and Rome couldn't stop the power of the gospel. 
Um, Luke treats these three chapters as one whole, and what we see in every chapter and at every turn is God's sovereign protecting hand over Paul and, and allowing every, just God's just making another opportunity for the gospel to go forth and another opportunity for the gospel to go forth. And every time people try to stand in the way, God sovereignly just orchestrates things so that the gospel just continues to spread. Uh, just for your brain to kind of like think about how to sum up these three chapters, it's this. Uh, I think we have it. Chapter 24 is Paul before Felix, a Roman governor. Chapter 25 is Paul before Festus, another Roman governor. And then chapter 26 is Paul before Agrippa, who's like a, a Roman kind of king over the, the Israeli area. So that's the, the summary. Um, and I really believe the Spirit of God has given us these three chapters, um, not just as history, uh, but because your calling is the same as the Apostle Paul's. That what we read in chapter 26 when Jesus says, get up, stand on your feet, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That was Jesus' commission to Paul, but it's also Jesus' commission to you. This is another version of the Great Commission. Um, so before we get to this moment in chapter 26, uh, let's pick it up in chapter 24. So flip back to chapter 24. Um, this is the first of the three trials Paul is, is on. And just as quick context, remember Paul's been arrested by the Romans uh, at the Temple Mount. He was accused by the Jews. The Roman commander rescued him. They were, they were trying to kill him. So he, this, this commander gets a whole army together and they transfer Paul to the city of Caesarea. And now Paul is in Caesarea and he's about to stand before the Roman governor, Felix. And they're waiting for the Jewish rulers to come testify against Paul. So that's, that's where we're at. Uh, let's read first the first nine verses of chapter 24. I'm reading out of the NIV. Uh, we will have the words on the screen, but I'd encourage you to look right ahead to just follow along in your Bible. So verses one through nine of chapter 24 says this. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He was a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. A couple really quick points. So we've, this is like the fourth time that Paul's been explained before our rulers what's been going on. They, the Jews kind of get their act together. They hire a lawyer. He's flattering the ruler. He's like, oh, you've done such an amazing job. I don't want to weary you. Let me just briefly tell you this man. And he just kind of rehashes the typical accusations against Paul, which we know are not true. Uh, and so then Paul responds. So we're going to read together verses 10 through 16 of Paul's response. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Uh, Paul basically just says, 
I haven't stirred up riots. These Jews have. I haven't preached against the Jews. I actually am a good Jew. I believe everything in the Jewish law. And I just am, and he's saying, I'm just reminding the Jews that they believe there's gonna be a resurrection of the the just and the unjust. And I'm just telling them that that's that's about Jesus. So Paul just kind of briefly is like, yeah, this isn't true. Uh, Now look at verses 17 to 21. He responds a little bit further about specifically what was going on. He says this in verse 17. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there were some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you to bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Paul's pointing out, listen, I was just uh, bringing good gifts to the poor. I was being a good religious person, not like stirring things up. I was ceremonially clean. I'm not like a bad Jew. I'm not desecrating the temple. And then he he points out, this is an important legal point. Uh, It was really looked down upon to have the accuser. You know when you get a, a ticket and you go to court if you've ever done this, and uh, if the cop doesn't even show up, like you get off. What Paul's pointing out is the people who are accusing me aren't even here. The Jews from Asia who are stirring this whole thing up, they're not even standing here. And Paul has a, a legitimate legal point. It was looked down on, especially in Roman court, if the accuser wasn't even there. So Paul's like, listen, like I'm a good religious person. They aren't even like following the, the, the good legal practices. Like I'm, I'm a good, I'm citizen in good standing. Now look at how Felix responds. We're just gonna look at two verses. It says this, then Felix who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. What just happened, he's like, you know what? I'm gonna wait for that, remember that Roman commander, Lysias, to come. Then I'll decide, Paul, you're still like under arrest, but you can have your friends come visit you. You're not, you haven't been accused of a crime, so... You, you get some privileges. Um, but really what this kind of feels like, and we'll see this pattern again and again, is it's just lazy injustice on the part of a Roman ruler. Like he saw clearly, there's no case here, but he prolongs the justice, uh, the justice system. He should have let Paul go. Um, and, and we even need to notice this. It was just human injustice and laziness, but notice what God is doing in the midst of this, okay? Look at the very next verse, verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, do you see what just happened there? He was being lazy, he wasn't being just, Yet there's something in him, God is stirring up something in him like, I need to hear more about this Jesus Paul's talking about. And through this laziness and injustice, now Paul has an opportunity to preach the gospel, to preach about faith in Christ Jesus to this governor. Even in the injustice, as we've seen so many times, even in injustice and human evil, God is at work to get the gospel out. And, and notice how Paul, the evangelist, shares the gospel with them, okay? Um, it, if, if there was ever a mentor in evangelism, it's Paul. Let, look what verse 25 says, how Paul speaks to him. This is not what you would expect. Verse 25, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. Um, What does it look like to faithfully tell people about Jesus? Certainly we've seen in the book of Acts uh, many, many things, and we should study the way people evangelize in the book of Acts. In this situation, before this man, Paul, we see him share, he says these three things. He talks about righteousness, 
talks about self-control, and he talks about the judgment to come. Uh, do, do we even as Christians talk about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, let alone do this with an unbeliever? And I just want to say, with the authority of Scripture, we should learn from Paul the evangelist. We should learn that in our conversations with people who don't yet know Jesus, we need to talk about righteousness. The idea that God is holy, that he demands righteousness from us, and that we have all fallen short of that righteousness. And do you know why we talk about righteousness? Because then we get to talk about Jesus, who is the only righteous one. We don't say, we, Christianity isn't, let me tell you about the righteous Christians reaching out to the unrighteous unbelievers. What we say is only God is righteous. We have all fallen short of the righteousness of God except for Jesus, who was righteous and a perfect sacrifice for my sins, unbeliever, and your sins, unbeliever. We get to testify about Jesus when we talk about righteousness. We should not be afraid to talk about the holiness and the goodness and justice of our God. It is a good thing that there is a holy, righteous God in the universe. This should be part of our evangelism. We should also talk about self-control. Uh, that fruit of the spirit that so often gets forgotten, right? That we, by the power of God and the spirit in us, must display self-control. That when someone comes to Jesus, they display self-control in our words, in our sexuality, in our consumption of food, alcohol, and entertainment. And you know what's amazing is we even talk about self-control with non-believers. Do you remember John the Baptist? Remember when he just called out uh, the other Herod for, for taking his brother's wife? He just calls him out. He's like, dude, you can't do that. He, he's holding an unbeliever to self-control. Like, that's not right. The reason why this is important is, again, it gets us to Jesus. That though we have fallen short, that though we have lost our self-control, that every one of us experiences like the bitter sting when we lose our self-control, Jesus Jesus came. He came to, he, he was holy and perfect. He came to take away our sins and to enable us to live lives of self-control. And then we're, we're actually supposed to talk about the judgment to come. Um, there, is, and this isn't a surprise, there's, actual, there's actually an assault on this doctrine within the church that like judgment isn't a thing anymore or that judgment is an Old Testament thing. Like, here we have the most effective evangelist in the New Testament, church planner, missionary. He's written more books of the New Testament than anybody else, talking about the judgment to come with an unbeliever. We just have to learn with, from the authority of the Holy Spirit in Scripture that the judgment to come is not off topic. It is, it is important that, that, that it doesn't make sense that there would be a holy God who would never judge evil. That it, doesn't make, that it doesn't make sense. We are so upset when there is no justice in our own courts, let alone the universe. It is a good and righteous thing that there is a judgment to come. That love is not uh, against judgment. That if you've ever loved anyone or anything, you aggressively seek the good of that person. Which means anything that's threatening the good, you're like, I'm going after that. That's not okay. That, that because God is holy, he will always judge sin. And do you know why we talk about the judgment to come? Because then we get to talk about Jesus, who on the cross faced the judgment of God so that we who put our hope in Jesus don't have to fear the judgment to come. Like that's really good news. And, and those who don't put their trust in Jesus do need to be concerned about the judgment to come. And we should have a sense of urgency and we should love people enough like Paul to discuss judgment with them. That Jesus came to save them from the wrath of God. That he loves the world enough that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believe in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. And so Paul is faithful in this chapter with the 
injustice and the opportunities God's put before him because of that injustice to preach the gospel, to preach Jesus. And then look at what Felix says. We, we read it, look again at verse 25. As Paul talked about these things, Felix said, that's enough for now. You may leave. And hear these words, this is important. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping Paul would, would offer him a bribe so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When, don't miss this, two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Man, he rejects the gospel. He, he wanted money instead of Jesus, doesn't get it, and so he leaves Paul in prison for two more years. Paul's just sitting there. This is what's happening, God. What is happening? And before we move on, we need to notice the contrast here. We see one man is in prison for being faithful to Jesus and is just kept in prison for two years without a legitimate conviction. And then we see another man seeking money. What was that word? Convenience. And only truth that will comfort him. And right now, I'm just going to take a a shot at something we are also tempted to desire. That's the American dream. Money, convenience, and spiritually comfortable truth. Money, convenience, and spiritually comfortable truth. When when you look at it with eternity in, in view, isn't it insane that this man would reject Jesus an eternal life for the hope of a little more convenience and a few more bucks. What if life is not about our convenience and our comfort? What if our life is for the sake of the name of Jesus? That if, what, what if we viewed every circumstance, including injustice against us, as an opportunity to be faithful to Jesus? What if our time and our talents and our treasure were all leveraged for Jesus and not our own comfort and convenience. I'm just gonna say it. It is a unbiblical lie that we should live for our money, our convenience, and our spiritual comfort. Man, it is love when someone, if, if, if you are in a house that is burning down and someone wakes you up, and says, get out of your bed. Uh, That discomfort is nothing but love. Comfort is not good if your situation is not good. Like, it is good to be uncomfortable sometimes if it's gonna save your life, let alone your soul. And so Paul, in love for this man, he rejects this, and he says, bro, you need to repent. Judgment's coming. I'm gonna speak truth to you in love because I love you, Like eternity is at stake. And so he preaches the gospel. And then we see this man. What a good story if Felix gets saved, right? He rejects him. And we're like, why was that chapter in the Bible? That was depressing. Um, But what we see is even in his rejection of Jesus, his further unjust treatment of Paul, we see it as we've been seeing passing through the careful hands of God. And listen, This rejection sets up the next opportunity that Paul has to share the gospel and ultimately get the gospel one step closer to Rome. We see the sovereign God ordaining even all of this so that Paul would have even another opportunity, which gets us to chapter 25, where almost the same thing happens all over again. So now, uh, open open up chapter 25. We're going to read the first seven verses now of what happens next. Verses one through seven of 25. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus, the new guy, went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they're preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. 
after spending eight or 10 days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Again, we just see, it's like, how many times have we read this story, right? Like, I need to hear more information. And all the Jews come. We're, they're trying to do favors for the Jews. They're trying to transfer Paul so that he could get killed. This is all over again. And then we see Paul's defense um, in verse eight. And I love it. It's one sentence. Verse eight, Paul's just sick of this. He's like, what is this? Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Just, I've done nothing wrong. He, is, he just affirms, I'm not, against, I'm not against Jews, not against the temple, I'm not against Caesar. And then Festus, look at his response in verse nine. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Which remember, Paul was already in Jerusalem for all kinds of trials. They move him to Caesarea so that he could be on more trials. Now Festus is like, do you wanna go back to Jerusalem to have another trial? And look what Paul says, we'll read verses 10 through 12. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourselves know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by the Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go. Uh, remember that chapters ago, years ago now, Paul was moved by the spirit, like I gotta get to Jerusalem and then I gotta get to Rome. And Jesus stood by him and said, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, I'm sending you to Rome. So Paul knows I'm supposed to get to Rome. The spirit's calling me, compelling me to get to Rome. So he's like, I don't wanna go back to Jerusalem. I'm standing in Caesar's court, get me to Caesar. So he grants Paul's request. Now we're gonna get more of Festus's response to the gospel. Paul's gonna get an opportunity to like, preach to him, that's coming. But look how Festus, uh, as, as the role of his governor, provides another opportunity for the gospel to be shared by even a higher Roman ruler. We're gonna read verses 13 to 22, okay? So look at the, the, remember the theme here, the sovereign hand of God orchestrating even in all of this injustice, the gospel is going forth. Let's read verses 13 to 22. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Felix left as prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them it's not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered that the man be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion, about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed to be alive. I was at a loss to, to how to investigate these matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand on trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar." Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself, he replied. Tomorrow you will hear him. Again, more injustice, more trials, more false accusations. And yet, what are the chances that a higher governor, ruler, King Agrippa would happen to come visit and that this trial would happen to be going on and that this, this uh, Agrippa would have this desire, I, I need to hear this guy. Like, what are the chances? Listen, God is at work providing opportunity after opportunity for Paul to preach the gospel. Now, I wanna ask you, I wanna make this personal for you. What is the most frustrating situation you are facing in life right now? Think about that. What is the absolute most frustrating situation in your life? What's the most just drawn out problem, something you're facing every day and it won't go away? Is it possible that God is sovereign over your life and that situation? Is it possible that God wants the gospel to go forth 
through and because of that situation? Is it possible that this situation is being prolonged because God has purposes for the gospel and his glory to go forth? Let me answer those questions for you. Yes, it is possible. In fact, we can know that is exactly what God is doing in our lives. Every circumstance that is unjust and unfair and wrong and drawn out and excruciating is for the sake of the gospel to go forth in your life. Is it possible that Paul was left in prison for two more years just so that this chance meeting with Agrippa could have happened? Is it possible? Yes. Is it possible that God is orchestrating our lives, the years of our lives in the same way? Church, be encouraged. God is at work. He has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. And not only that, he has purposes for you in those situations. And just be encouraged that we are not alone in this like evangelism and the mission of God. Like God is actually orchestrating our lives. He is with us. He is helping us. He's preparing the opportunities that we could be faithful to preach the gospel wherever we go and whatever is happening. However we are inconvenienced, God is at work in our lives. Now, to move on to Paul's the, uh, trial before the third Roman ruler, we see the chapter wrap up. It's kind of the setup at the end of chapter 25. Uh, let's read verses 23 to 27 as, as the setup. So, so Agrippa's like, yeah, I want to hear him. So it says this. The next day, verse 23, Agrippa and Bernice, which pause, is actually his sister, and uh, it's thought that they had an incestuous relationship. So these are the type of high Roman rulers Paul's talking to. Uh, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he has done nothing deserving of death, but because he has made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing def definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. So he's like, honestly, I don't know what to say. Uh, I got to write to Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, about why this guy's on trial. I don't know what to say. And God's like, how about another opportunity for the gospel to go out to this entire Roman court? So Paul's like, all right, here we go. Let's do this again. Chapter 26, verses one through seven. This is what happens. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise of our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. He's just summing up his testimony. I love that he says, uh, I, I'm, I consider myself fortunate. That's what he, how he genuinely views his situation. And notice, okay, I'm gonna point something out even before we get there. Paul's being sneaky right here. Paul's already preaching, okay? He's like, yeah, okay, I'll share my defense. But he's already like, a, like subtly preaching, speaking specifically to Agrippa. Uh, now look what he says in the next verse, verse eight. 
Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? He just, he stops defending himself and he starts preaching to the whole crowd. And it's a pretty reasonable idea, right? Like if God is God, maybe he could raise the dead. So now at this point, everyone's like, yeah, this is, I guess it's not incredible. And then Paul just keeps going. We're gonna read verses nine to 18. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them, I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now, before we move on, I believe uh, that the, the verses that are coming, coming next are the central theme of these three chapters, and I believe that it's why the Spirit put these stories in here, and I believe it's what we need to hear as a church. The, the words of Jesus is what we read at first, but I want us to like imagine Jesus saying this to you, because he is. Listen, verse 16. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Church, that is, if you are a Christian, that's your testimony. Do you know that? You've met Jesus on a Damascus road, so to speak. And your own eyes have been opened spiritually, just like Paul's. And you have been turned from darkness to light. And you have been rescued from the power of Satan to the power of God. And you have received the forgiveness of your sins. And you have received a place among those sanctified by faith in Jesus. That's your testimony. But now, church, even more, that's your calling. Jesus says to you this morning, get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you have seen and will see. A lot of times when we're sharing our faith, like, man, I don't know what to say. Listen, just testify about what you've seen about Jesus. If you're saved, you've seen enough and you can testify about that. And then he says to you, church, I am sending you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God so that they will receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Now, it is, it is proper that when we hear those words of Jesus to us, that we may feel uh, desperate and even inadequate and even unable. Because listen, we can't open people's eyes and turn them from darkness to light. Only God can. And yet, by some mystery of the gospel and the, the Holy Spirit, God uses people like us in sharing simple truths about Jesus to open spiritually blind eyes to see and turn them from their sins to God. And we just need to notice that it is the strength and power and might of God and not our own cleverness. We can rely on the gospel 
what Jesus has given us and not our own wisdom. We can rely on the power of the blood of Jesus and not our own goodness and strength. We can rely on the the fact that the gospel has its own power to bring light to darkness that we don't have. When, When we hear like this commission to go, we should feel desperate. We should pray. We should then rely on the word of God and the spirit of God and not our own wisdom and strength. And that, that is our calling church. In this season, those were Jesus's words to you. And then Paul goes on to explicitly preach the gospel to Agrippa. Look at verses 19 to 20. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, then to the Gentiles, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent, turn to God, and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. And then he finishes uh, up to verse 23. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and the gospels. And then Festus, we finally get the second governor's response. Look what he says in verse 24. At this point, (laughs) Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. I love that. And then Paul turns to Agrippa, look at verses 26 to 29. He says this, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Agrippa's like, whoa, are you trying to convince me in front of everybody right now to become a Christian? And Paul's like, Yeah, yeah, I am. Church, let me just answer this really clearly. Are we trying to make other people Christians? Yes. Yes, we are. We believe that Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life. This is our explicit aim and desire. This is why we pray as Paul prayed that they who listen to us would become like us, would put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus. But then look at the response, verses 30 through 32. The king rose with him, the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment, Agrippa said to Festus. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so that right there is setting us up for the last two chapters as Paul goes to Rome. Now, I want us to notice this as as we wrap this up. All three rulers do not accept the gospel. We just read three chapters of Paul boldly preaching and we don't read of a single convert. Um, It seems like injustice is prevailing. It seems like Paul is just pointlessly suffering for years. Uh, If I were Paul, and and when we read this and maybe we feel this, it's it's easy to ask like, What's the point of all of this, Lord? Like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, the gospel's getting out, but like nobody's receiving it. Uh, doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Like our, in our own efforts to share the gospel, like they're not believing, Lord. I worked uh, at Starbucks for three years and um, I, I mean, I'll at least say this, I don't have the gift of evangelism. So I obeyed Jesus and I prayed and spent all this time building relationships. And there were three significant people that the Lord had me invest in and not a single one accepted Jesus. And I'm like, what was the point of all of that? It would make sense if someone got saved. 
Um, and, and from our text, I, I want us to notice three important things. What's going on? Number one, we, we know that Paul's called to get to Rome. That if for nothing else, God is orchestrating all of these circumstances that he would get to Rome and possibly even preach to the emperor. Number two, look at the fruit of Paul's life. We do see fruit. We do see churches were planted. We do see people get saved. Furthermore, the gospel does get to Rome and then goes to Africa and then all of Europe and then North America and then South America and then Asia. And right now it's coming back as Africa and Asia and South America are sending missionaries to the US and to Europe. We see the gospel is powerful. We see its fruit. But like why these three chapters with no apparent fruit? Let me say this. This is maybe the most important thing we could hear this morning. We see Paul obeying Jesus. As verse 19 says in chapter 26, so then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. Uh, let me ask you this, this is, this is interesting. Do you know what's at the, the, the very bottom of why we share the gospel with people? We should love our neighbors and we should be concerned about the coming judgment. But at the very bottom, it's obedience to Jesus. The deepest reason we share the gospel, the deepest, hear me, fuel for sharing the gospel is actually obedience to Jesus. Love for his word and obedience to his commandments. The Bible's really clear that we plant water, but, but we can't do anything. Only God brings the growth. And so we are called to be faithful and share the gospel and trust that Jesus can save people. Trust that Jesus can save people. Do you know how freeing that is when people don't get saved? We don't see Paul crumble here like, what's the point? Nobody's getting saved. Paul knows it's not his job. Jesus can save people. Jesus can open eyes and turn people. He's just called to obey Jesus and be faithful. Church, we are simply called to obey Jesus and be faithful. Let me also say this. This is what protects us from changing the message, getting all weird, trying to like woo people in with all kinds of other things. Like that's not gonna save people anyways. Only Jesus will. And it's not on us to save people. We are simply called to obey Jesus, be faithful and trust him with his gospel that he will save many more. Uh, and I want to close with this, this. This is almost like a little family meeting that you normally start with. Uh, in this season of our church where Britt, our pastor for preaching and vision, is on extended sabbatical, a common question that uh, leaders and volunteers and elders get is this. Like, what's the vision of the church? Like, right now, like, where's the church going? Like, like what's happening right now? Like, our normal guy who communicates this vision and seeks it from the Lord, like, he's not here, like, is there vision? Is there uh, a direction right now? And I, I want to say this, church. It is clearer than ever that in this season, like this week, next week, God is calling our church to obey Jesus by sharing the gospel with other people. Easter is two weeks away. It is literally likely the greatest opportunity all year for unbelievers to hear the gospel in this community. Think about that. That's two weeks away. Let me tell you what else is clear when that happens. Our enemy is doing everything he can to keep that from happening. He's doing everything he can to keep them. That's why we pray. He's doing everything he can to stir up our flesh, to, to make us fall in sin that we would feel disqualified as if it's our own goodness that saves people. Let me be so clear that in this season, God is calling us, Reality Carpinteria, to obey Jesus and share the gospel. That is so crystal clear as we're finishing the book of Acts in the timing, sovereign timing of God. Um, even as we were in our heritage series, as we're called to intimacy with Jesus through his word, it's that we would bear much fruit through hospitality and evangelism. It's just clear Jesus is leading our church saying, church, this is what is important right now, that you would obey me and share the gospel. And I believe, church, that God has not just blessed us as a church that loves the word of God and will sit patiently for three whole chapters to say yes and amen. I believe Jesus is calling you to obey him, to obey his word.
that we would be spiritually alive and bearing fruit and sharing Jesus and making disciples and not living for convenience or money. May we, like Paul, say, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. And may we also get to say, God is helping me. He is at work. He is building his church. He, his arm is not, has not been shortened to save in Carpinteria or the coastlands in the 21st century. He is God. He has not changed. He is able to save. That's what Jesus is calling us to as a church. So I'm going to pray for us now. And then as we worship, let's look at Jesus where we get our encouragement and our fuel and our forgiveness and the spirit of God and refreshing that we would go out and obey him. Amen. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken. Jesus, thank you that you have been really clear with our church about what you are doing right now, like this afternoon, like tomorrow night after work. Jesus, you've been really, really gracious and kind to us, Reality Carp, to speak to us and to lead us. Please, God, give us the ability to obey you as Paul did. I was not disobedient. Please, Jesus, help those of us who are afraid of rejection to be more, uh, to fear you more than man. Lord, help those of us who are just riddled with our own guilt and our own issues. Please remind us this morning of your blood that was shed, that it's your righteousness that qualifies us. And that we just get to share good news that though all of us have fallen short, you've made a way. Please, Holy Spirit, would we be a church that obeys you and, and give us just ex expectation, even as Paul is looking ahead, like I'm going to Rome. Give us expectation that in two weeks, at this moment, uh, you're gonna be adding people to your kingdom. And give us even more uh, faith that maybe you would just have us lead someone to the Lord before then, that we would have the, the, the love to speak truth and the good news of Jesus, the love of God to our neighbors, our friends and our family. Lord, even this morning, if someone is here who hasn't yet put their hope and trust in you, would they do so even now that though their sins make them like scarlet Jesus, you've, your blood was shed and you have washed their sins away white as snow and that they can receive a place this morning, even now, among those who have been sanctified, set apart as chosen vessels for God and for his kingdom. So please, Holy Spirit, come. Please, Holy Spirit, move in your church. Minister to us, Lord. And like Paul, man, maybe we have, we got stuff going on. And we're hurting and it's unfair. Allow us to, to, to think in terms of eternity um, in your sovereign hand, even in, in this situation that we face ourselves in, that we'd be faithful to you.